Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we welcome Portfolio Manager Ramona Prasad. Ramona manages Fidelity U.S. Dividend Fund, which includes private pool and registered versions, and also sub-manages several income mandates. Ramona discusses how she's positioning herself in today's sensitive market environment and where she's finding opportunities, specifically alpha in U.S. equities. She touches on valuations from a global perspective. She says one thing that stayed true is inside developed markets. The U.S. has done extremely well, so U.S. valuations are much richer. Ramona talks about areas of potential for alpha and discretionary. She says discretionary is a middle ground zero and has been in this very inflationary time. Employment is high and there's wage growth, so there are really interesting valuations and valuation dispersion inside of discretionary. She also speaks about her investment process and emphasizes that her and her team want to deliver three things. They want to deliver alpha and want downside protection with the alpha. Ramona also touches upon her investment style and how it differs from other strategies that are from income and where she is finding opportunities globally. This podcast was recorded on March 7th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's begin with, we spoke to you sort of just before the, the winter holidays, kind of before Christmas holidays, and you, you had some great thoughts on us on, on where, what we'd sort of been wrapping up and where we were going. Let's ask a little bit further on sort of, did 2022 on the rate side of things do what was needed in terms of derating? Is there more to go? And, and also from an earnings perspective, like are, are we about done on both of those? He just went for it. That is the question, and I like it. I like starting that way. So really good question. We derated a lot in 22. Um, the multiple started out very high, and now it's sort of earnings turn to, to deflate, I guess. So the question is, does, multiple, does the multiple really reflect what has to happen in earnings? And I think to some extent, but it's hard to really say. The way that I think about it is on the U.S. market, we're probably like a high teens multiple of an earnings number that might still be optimistic. And for me, for my investing style, high teens is a bit rich. It's not as rich as it has been, but it's kind of rich. So I would like to, I typically would like to wait for something that's a little bit more depressed before having a lot of conviction to invest. Right. Okay. So what in terms of valuations being perhaps a bit rich, as you just mentioned, where does that sort of leave you hunting? Because we are seeing tons of volatility. I mean, things are sort of blowing up and then then we see them coming back. I mean, there there is a ton of vol. How does that fit in with how you find opportunities? 
So, um, so that's the big picture top down. But of course, you know, the role, like what we are here to do is to try to figure out, to try to parse through the market globally, certainly, and figure out where is the opportunity. And it's not all that obvious, but there are a couple ways to look at it. So from a global perspective, one thing that's true, and that's been true for a really long time, is inside of developed markets, the U.S. has done extremely well. So U.S. valuations are um, much richer, the spread with the rest of the developed world especially Europe, that spread is pretty wide. So there's there's a lot of hope, perhaps, amongst global investors that finally Europe will have its day, especially given the reprieve that it's gotten in things like uh, energy prices and its avoided recession as a result. So that's one area of potential opportunity. And I'm seeing some um, global multinationals that would compete with U.S.-listed multinationals that are listed in Europe that are a lot cheaper. In, out of industries like staples and discretionary. So that's interesting to me. Overall, I don't necessarily believe in the valuation dispersion between Europe and the U.S. closing dramatically. I think there's room for it to close, but not necessarily dramatically. Europe feels a lot like Japan to me for lots of different reasons. And we'll get that's into that later. So as a result, I think there's like structural reasons that that valuation spread will persist. But from a short-term, maybe cyclical perspective, you can get some you can get some closure. So that's that's one way to look at the opportunity set or the parsing that I talk about. Another way, it's basically factors. So another thing I think about is defensives across the world versus uh, cyclicals. And so defensive valuations versus cyclical valuations, there's a decent amount of spread there too in that defensives are more expensive. And so that would lead me to hunt more inside of cyclicals. So for instance, discretionary across the world, and especially in Europe, has a lot of cheapness in it. Another way to parse is large versus small. Because large would tend to be more defensive than small, so they're not totally, all these factors aren't necessarily unrelated, there's more opportunity in the smaller companies than larger. So that's three different ways to try to get at where where the value is. And I, I should say that I think the markets are even more skittish today than before. And you see it in how the market responds to small and often noisy data points. So when you have that kind of skittishness, you can get a lot of opportunity that arises. So that's that's sort of a way that I wait to try to parse through the opportunity set as well. That's that's really interesting. Can we can we go to sort of that perhaps areas or potential for alpha in discretionary? Can we just go a bit further into why that's attractive? You know, discretionary is is kind of a bit of ground zero, has been in this very inflationary time. You've got really great employment numbers, right? Employment is extremely high, so everyone virtually has a job. And you've got wage growth, which is wonderful. So you've got people able to spend, but the companies also have, which means, which not a but, which means that the companies have like really highly inflating costs. So both in terms of um, the materials they need for the products they're supplying, as well as their labor. So there are like all these headwinds to discretionary. You've got a deeply inverted yield curve, no matter how you measure it, which is trying to predict a recession. That's really tough for these high beta sectors. So as a result, you've got some really interesting valuations and valuation dispersion inside of discretionary. So there are some retailers, there's a lot of parts of US discretionary that I can buy for around, certainly under 14 times. Some of it I can buy around 10 times or less than 10 times. Some of it has more of a staple flair to it that I can buy really cheap. 
So I like when I can find uh, lots of different kind of subsectors where there's value. And and are they in a particular geography? You mentioned you know sort of the international picture a bit. Do you, do you put some of those relative stories along with a global picture to? sort of find the most so like you know sportswear oriented retailers or you know mass handbags or mattresses or things that are considered highly discretionary in nature or footwear things like that and then in in that's kind of us those things i can buy at like eight times earnings which is amazing obviously it's not really eight times earnings. It's the market's trying to predict that those earnings are going to compress. But like when you can get it at that kind of valuation, like, you know, you, you, there's there's often not a lot of downside. So and then in, in um, the UK in particular, there's um, some really high quality discretionary companies like companies that have founder that are founder led with really strong um, return on capital to capital discipline that I can buy under uh, under around 14 times earnings or even the same kind of category, sportswear, footwear, that kind of thing, that the market's just really skeptical about whether the consumer is going to lose their job, run out of money, stop spending, all these things. And those things might happen, but when you can buy the, um, the business at a compelling valuation, a lot of those risks are priced in and you're not trying to you know buy the stock for six months, you're buying it for two, three plus years. Tell us a little bit about how broadly you your, your process works. I, I want to sort of ask a question about dividends within here, but just getting to how you look for opportunities, the, the sort of total return discussion. But how do you get um, there? Before I do the how we get there, let's start with what we want to accomplish. And then we'll talk about the, the why and the how. We want to deliver three things. We want to deliver alpha like everyone else. And, you know, tying it back to the thing you said about Morningstar and getting ranked top 10 or whatever. Morningstar is interesting because they focus on not just just alpha, they focus on the source of risk you're taking to get to that alpha. How do you get to the alpha? So that's always been intrinsic to me. I didn't know that about Morningstar when I started this. It's just always been the way that I think. So it's nice that, you know, we align. So I want the alpha, I want downside protection with the alpha, and I want a reasonable amount of income because these are income-oriented funds and income tends um, tends to dampen volatility. When you put those three things together, alpha, downside protection, and income, it really is an equation for risk-adjusted total return, which is like information ratio or lots of different ways. It's essentially like destination is your alpha, journey is how you get there, right? So that's that that's the language I tend to use. And you know, one of the most compelling reasons for that goal is the stickiness of the end investor. If you can produce a dependable level of alpha over time, alpha without a ton of volatility in it, in those moments when an end investor might feel really skeptical, like those moments of very high volatility, those are the moments that investors will often make decisions that are not in their interest. So sell at the bottom and buy at the top because of the the uncertainty created by high volatility. So one of the reasons I like to invest with with more smoothness is to be able to have the investor experience very much align with the fund experience, have the distance between those two experiences be as close as possible. And I think volatility is a large part of, of that outcome. So that's kind of the what we're trying to accomplish and why and the how in terms of how we get there for me is very much value and quality. 
So value, um, I believe, I'm a believer, is sort of the primary determinant of alpha, and quality is kind of your primary determinant of that risk adjustment, of that downside protection. So if you can balance between your value and your quality, you can really produce this risk-adjusted sort of alpha over time and have your fund experience, therefore, align with your investor experience. That's kind of my whole philosophical shtick, if you will. So I'm constantly looking for stocks that have one or the other, but ideally have both. So I can like the, the discretionary company, the discount retailer in London that I, in the UK that I described, amazing capital allocation returns on capital, great quality over time, currently trading at 14 times or lower. If I'm trying to invest for five plus years, that's a really good setup. So, so in this particular sort of day and age, if you will, where there are risks and there, there's some interesting and new risks. Why does this approach work particularly well? I mean, what sort of risks, for instance, do you see on the horizon that that sort of, I guess, reaffirms essentially your approach right now and always? There's always risk. <laughs> and sometimes it's more exogenous than not. And when, what, what's good about environments where they're, they're higher than average exogenous risks is that you get more indiscriminate behavior. You get more fear. So you get more stuff that just gets sold without any real analysis and stuff that gets bought without any real analysis. And so the role of like fundamental research and active management becomes stronger. So that's the upside of having higher exogenous risk. I think we are in we are in a higher than average exogenous risk situation today. You've got all these variables that you can't predict. <laughs> and I think this has been true since since coming out of the global financial crisis is perhaps a little bit more true today. So variables like inflation, very hard to predict. And obviously that then leads to, you know, rates, very hard to predict. Variables like geopolitics, war, supply, sort of an argument for the undersupply of energy. These are all things that are that are so exogenous in nature that trying to predict them and model them, and they're quite, they can be quite geometric, uh, they multiply, not add, makes it difficult to predict outcomes for single companies, which I think is a positive if you've got sort of people all over the world looking at companies directly and trying to trying to figure out the combination of what a company can do over time and how it's valued, what's expected about it. So I like the fact that leaning on research is really, you know, it always pays off, but, but can pay off really deeply in environments like these. So uh, asking for a bit of expansion on using a tactical strategy, um, can you speak to your self-discipline in this environment? And I'm sure always in turnover as well. Sell, selling stocks is a function of a few things. One is obviously when the fundamentals, when you're starting to predict the fundamentals are going to deteriorate. Two, when the valuation has deteriorated. Those are your more generic reasons for selling stocks. In an income strategy for me, Selling is also a function of capital alloc- predicting that capital allocation is changing. So fundamentals might be okay, but if a company is starting to want to invest that incremental unit of free cash flow more into, say, capital expenditure than into dividends, then that's risky for the income generation. And that's if only because your capital intensity is, is perhaps going up and your free cash flow generation might be threatened which puts the dividend on shaky ground. So the extra step for a dividend investor is around capital allocation when it comes to selling. And conversely, if capital discipline is improving to the point where we can see the free cash flow production 
of a company improving structurally or of an industry. So energy is a good example of that, where the energy companies eventually, um, they invested a ton, 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 ton over the last couple of decades. They then felt like they weren't getting paid for that investment by the markets and investors started um, advising them to just give the capital back. And so there's been this push towards higher capital discipline, which if you can combine that as we have been able to the last few years, right, this mindset of greater capital discipline, less capital intensity, plus better valuations, such as double digit free cash flow yields in the in the more um, lower beta parts of the sector. Whoa, that is an awesome setup for alpha. And we saw that coming out of coming out of that sector. So that's an example of buying and selling. And then turnover for me tends to be fairly low. Growing up in the era of Joel Tillinghast, which is just feels like incredible good fortune to just be like right next to him all the time and, and learning from him, has taught many of us that turnover is expensive. And certainly for him in a smaller smaller cap universe, I'm not a trader. And combining with what I've learned from Joel, my turnover tends to be really low. So it's like. 20, 30, 40%, which is low relatively. What would you say there are, there are other, for instance, and this is not necessarily just a dividend strategy, but how would you talk about your style and the type of investment in this firm versus other strategies that are for income? Um, other income strategies? Yeah. Mine versus? Dividend, let's say. I, I do think, and definitely the, my strategies, the way I invest, not my strategies per se, but the way I think about the world and investing is differentiated versus average. Um, in the very least, because I'm not just looking for alpha, I really care about how I get there. Um, and I, th- I think that's just the sort of engineering and science training, where the first thing you learn is um, <laughs> there is no free lunch. So uh, there's a cost to everything. <laughs> and so for me, that cost is risk. Um, I think that's very differentiated and even so that's versus sort of like general general investors and versus other uh, maybe dividend investors. I think what's different is that risk adjustment. Like I'm not just looking for the highest yield I can get or a really fat yield. I want um, information ratio, right? The information ratio, which is basically alpha over tracking error, alpha over relative tracking error, alpha over risk. In this strategy in the last three years has been like 0.7.8, which is high, very high, um, because I want to know that I'm not just giving you alpha, I'm doing it in a really risk aware manner. And again, that might sound really abstract and theoretical, but it's not. Um, it does appeal to my abstract theoretical engineering scientist brain, but the, the more um, visceral reason for that is because it very much aligns the investor experience with the fund experience. If you can minimize the risk you're not you're trying to take to get to that alpha, so that is I think differentiating versus typical investments and even versus um, other dividend-oriented investments. And what I should also say about when you're investing for dividends, um, passive strategies certainly try to maximize the dividend or just have really high dividends. Um, it's not a great alpha factor in the absence of valuation. So. Um, and that's because it's essentially a uh, derivative of, it's a factor that's, so I shouldn't get so abstract. It's a factor that is really sensitive to interest rates, right? It's like the income you get from stocks versus from other assets. So what's really important is to look at the spread between the income you're getting from one asset class versus the other <laughs> and compare that spread. And that spread is like 40%, 40th percentile today, low, versus the 10-year um, over a long history. 
So normalizing that spread. So for me, like my sort of propensity towards or away from yield is very analytical. I will back away from yield if it's expensive. And that tends to be a different approach to income investing or yield investing versus a typical investor. If it's expensive, I'm not getting any alpha from that, right? With um, We have a few minutes left. I wanted to end a little bit on a global note. You are a global citizen, for sure. And you know a lot about investing in different countries um, within your mandate. Can you invest in the mid-cap space? If so, are you finding opportunities more globally or, or more in the U.S.? Yeah. When we structured this fund, um, when we developed it, I didn't want any constraints. Um, obviously, it was going to be income oriented. So it wasn't going to be like that was probably one of the only constraints. And it was going to be value oriented because that was my natural style. I did not want constraints on where I went and how I went there. So I was very clear. It needs to be all cap, all regions, because you never know where the opportunity is going to show up. And in a way, what I just said is I will back away from dividends if they're expensive. There's also flexibility around that, too. And I was clear, like, I don't want to do this if you're going to sort of put handcuffs on me <laughs> because you need to go get your alpha in the most responsible way that you can. And right, if you if you limit it too much, then you're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. So, yes, and that was the abstraction. Yes, I can invest in mid caps, but more abstractly, I can go anywhere in any sort of style, like any factor. Right. What is what stays the same is the goal. I'm, I want to give you alpha in a very responsible manner, such that your end investors experience is as closely aligned with the fund's experience as possible. That's the goal. There is this hilarious show streaming right now with Eugene Levy, who's who's a Canadian actor. Anyway, he's very uncomfortable with travel, and they put him in a travel show, and he doesn't like it, really, and it's hilarious. It's, um, it's all of that sort of pent-up anger. But you are a great traveler, so I was going to ask what your top tip is, actually, for traveling the world. Woo! Oh, you know, gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is the bag that I carry. Right. So right. I got a little bag that I got when I got out of grad school, which was a long time ago, like 20 something years ago. Somebody gave it to me as a gift and I call it my pork chop. It's like a, it was a Brookstone bag and it, it fits under it fits under the seat, even in a prop plane. And I've taken that thing to Japan for like a week or to like, you know, Hong Kong, Japan and Korea for like three weeks. And, you know, you got to get creative with how you do it. But yeah, like the bag that you take because you don't you don't know what's going to go wrong and i think yes you can think about this in terms of investing too you don't know what you're what's going to go wrong what kind of plane you're going to have to take what you're going to miss and i'm not trying to lose my stuff so the bag has to i don't know if there's a way to extend that to how i invest but flexibility <laughs> maybe maybe you have to design those bags and sell them <laughs> again yeah, I got them them right now that's like a hundred but a friend just, the reason i thought of that is a friend just asked for a bag tip so the Samsonite version is even better. It's a hundred bucks. So I don't know. That's that's a very pragmatic. No, it's it's very pragmatic. I, I, I feel like I, the more the more uh, abstract idea is like don't be afraid of adventure. I've done a lot of adventure travel, and it's good. It's you good. Learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about yourself. It's so At true. Any age. <laughs> Yay! I love that. Ramona Persona, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. And I'm so glad that everyone could uh, hear your thoughts today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.